in three, two, one, go. Woohoo! Oh, we're back. We're, we're back. back. Okay, so hello, agents, and welcome back to season two of Podcast 13. And a really quick perfectionist disclaimer before we start. My audio crashed in the middle of this recording, but luckily Jillian was running a backup that saved it. It just is a little less high definition than if it had been directly through my computer. So you, our listeners, might not even notice, but me as a perfectionist, I notice and I want to apologize for it. But I felt it was so much better to use our backup recording and have this amazing, you know, at least three hours of content that we recorded than to try to start all over. So enjoy. And if that bothers you, it will be back to normal next week. So we have some thank yous to dole out to our wonderful Patreon supporters. But we want to say a special shout out to friend and writer of the show, Benjamin Robb, one half of the writing team of Benjamin Robb and Derek A. Hughes, for not only supporting us on Patreon, but for being the patron that took us over the top that helped us reach our monthly, our first monthly goal on Patreon. We're so grateful and thanks so much for being a listener and for creating this great thing that we all get to enjoy. Yes, thank you so much to Ben Rob and everyone else who helped us meet that first milestone. It's huge because now we're not actively losing money. Yes. We are breaking even. And I think uh, as we continue to get patrons, we can use more money to you know have more web content available and more hosting and all of that because it costs money so thank you all we love you and appreciate you and we also had several like one-time donors which we really understand and appreciate a lot of people do the the monthly donations but a lot of people are like well i can't do that but i gave you five bucks one time or you know whatever and we really really appreciate and see you for doing that too so thank you guys very very much yeah and the rest of our supporters who are new to our uh, Patreon include Colin Robertson, CC Ray, Laura Kitchings, Christina Kirkland, and Joshua Enriquez. So thank you all. Um, we really appreciate you. And uh, as I mentioned in our previous uh, mailbag, we are working on giving people the additional patreon benefits a couple people are owed pins or buttons from the mailbag and a couple of people can uh provide us their introduction recordings like jonna did at the end of season one so we will be in touch with you to remind you how you can do that if you have not claimed your introduction or claimed something else um we love you guys so much and we can't do this without you so thank you a lot so we have uh, writer's appreciation slash not, right? Yes, we have a continued appreciation for wonderful writer Jack Kenny, about whom we don't have much new to say, but who we still love. Yes, and we will hear from him later about this particular episode because we asked him about a particular character. So thank you, Jack, again for talking with us about the show and for being the amazing showrunner that we love. And a reminder to our listeners that there will be Easter eggs from people we interviewed throughout the series. Jack Kenny is no exception, so be sure to always listen through. 
Yeah, yeah. Don't stop in the middle. Yeah, weirdos. <laughs> <laughs> we're ad free. If anyone stops and gives up, it's just it's so sad. I mean, we're like, sorry to see you go, but this this is what we are. <laughs> <laughs> and with that, we move on to this week's summary. Pete and Micah deal with the destruction of the warehouse. Claudia searches for the truth. And McPherson unleashes an unpredictable foe. Oh, an unpredictable foe. <laughs> oh, man. There is so, so very good. little you can say without spoiling. So, uh, yes, we are about to spoil it all because yeah. season two is here and we love this episode. Or at least I really love this episode. Oh, my God. Who doesn't love this episode? <laughs> Everything about this episode is just perfect. Um, so I think we're ready to launch in. Yes. Um, my very first note is, oh, by the way, this is the episode 201, Time Will Tell. Yes, it is. Um, and my first note is, previously on Warehouse 13, Umbilicus <laughs> Go Boom. <laughs> oh, no. Gosh, you know, I, I was thinking back on that and being like, how could you just sit for three months and, like, Umbilicus went boom, already be dead, like, everything is terrible. Yes. Um, so for those who didn't listen to the last episode we recorded before listening to this one, or, like, recently enough quick update Artie's real dead the umbilicus which is the little corridor that leads into the office of the warehouse blew up and there is no way he could have survived mcpherson has unbronzed himself and gotten free and lena was discovered to be under mcpherson's influence and use the thimble to transform into Claudia, who she framed for doing the bad deeds. Yes, yep. And Artie was, as you said, in the umbilicus, and this was my note, when McPherson exploded it. Um, and that's pretty much where we pick up to see what happens next. At the warehouse, at the explosion site, Micah runs to Pete, and at the bronze sector... Lena unbronzes someone else. A mysterious unknown person who Lena tells we don't have much time. And Pete and Micah, as Jill said, are rummaging through the ruins, which is so sad because, like, it's really, really ruined. And they're, like, looking for any sign of Artie. And they just find his bent-up glasses. And they're real bent-up. His glasses get broken a lot in this show. Yes. They're so bent-up. And it's Micah who finds them. And she's doing that thing of being great in a crisis that she's so good at. But you can tell, like, this is this is a temporary situation. Like, she will handle this crisis. And then when she is on her own private time, she will fall apart, is, like, the way she's looking right now. Yeah. Um, and just as they realize that he must surely be dead, a smoky cloud starts swirling around. And Pete and gets a vibe! Ah, a good one! A good vibe! It smokes up! It is not that weird thing from Lost. It is party. <laughs> That's what I thought about, too. And the, <laughs> I have to say, the effect there was so cool. 
It, it was. was. And when you think about how it happened, which we'll get to in a second, it it worked visually very well. The ashes rose up, and then within the dark ash, you just saw a few sparks that seemed at first to, like, just misfire within it, and then took the form of Artie, and then he reconstituted. And the first thing he says is, so that's how it works. Oh my gosh. And so we know, we also had a reminder on the previously on that this must be the Phoenix. And so our view of the, you know, the ashes rising up, it's like perfect for that mythology. And, um, oh my gosh, the first thing Pete does is like pounces and gives him this big bear hug. And Micah is like, I think she's like not really mad, but she's like, you scared the hell out of us. But she's so relieved to see him, and and she she puts his glasses on his face for him. And I don't know if you caught it, because before she yells at him, which is a very Micah way to show affection, mm-hmm. um, she says quietly, I've never been so happy to see you, and then puts the glasses on his face. Oh, you know, I did, I did, I just was probably mostly just weeping at Pete being so cute, because anytime a big burly man like hugs another man. I'm like, this is what we need to see on television. Yes. Um, and that's going to come back later because there's more hugs throughout the episode. I know. Um, I love it. I love it. So Artie looks around and realizes that he didn't just die, but the warehouse exploded. And like, I don't think he is immediately aware that it's just a very small portion around him I think at first he's like oh my god did the whole warehouse explode just trying to put it together and he's also um I think you know we we love Saul's acting because his eyes are all frantic and searching because Artie is realizing that the phoenix has this like balance of life and death energy so it's like what's gonna happen if my life was spared sort of thing yeah well pete says how could you possibly have survived and Artie takes the phoenix out of his pocket and then pete says if you use the phoenix that means somebody's gotta die but i want to remind our listeners that it's not a one-to-one correlation Mm -hmm. it's about who has touched the phoenix before and it may be one or several people that pay for the life of the person who has been reconstituted, which I really like because it's always dicey when you kill off a character and bring them back because you always want the character back, but you also don't want to diminish the meaning of death in the world so that nothing has stakes anymore. So I like that there's, even though something has been fixed, there's immediately this undercurrent of anxiety. So right when everyone... Uh, realizes what's happening, Pete begins coughing. And the creepy, scary music kind of goes, and we're like, oh, no, oh, no. And then after a few minutes of intensity, he's like, ugh, ugh. Like, was I choking on you, Artie? Anyway, it's a scene of an explosion, so of course it's full of dust and smoke and things that would make you cough. And I also thought, my first thought was, Artie, I mean, my first thought was, Pete, this is a really bad time to pull a prank. People are actually really scared right now. But as I was pausing to take that note, I froze on an image and realized 
He had literally just choked on some dust, but it was Artie's fault because Artie was yanking Pete by the collar in a way that, like, cut off his windpipe. He's like, are you okay? <laughs> but, but it was like, no, I can't. You're choking me, which is even I better. I didn't see that. That's so good. And I just thought it was great because if Artie was, you know, what's the word, obliterated into ash, like, I mean, I guess you could be choking on his ashes. It's like... Horror stories. I know MFM has had a listener write in about, you know, having your grandma's ashes and yes. spilling them, or, you know, like whatever. <laughs> um, and then I put in all caps, Mike a moment. She starts welling up after realizing that Pete's okay and that Artie's okay and not before, which is exactly the kind of realistic, heartfelt moment that really showcases her skills. And then while Pete is making a joke and Artie's like, oh, okay, she's just in the background and she smooths back her hair and takes a deep breath and she's not even fully in focus. It's one of those perfect acting is reacting moments where she was just fully in the character. And as that is a relief, we cut to Mrs. Frederick and the bodyguard driving her car. It is our beloved actor, Jung Yul Kim, and may I also remind you that in the previously on, it showed Mrs. Frederick and him driving away. So his last record, his character was named unofficially, but that's what the writers called him. They called him No Ma'am because that was his only line in the pilot. And his last recorded words on the show were Yes Ma'am. It was so perfect and sad. And, you know, he coughs that smoke and we know it's going to be him. Um... And we don't see the crash happen, but we see Pete and Micah rush outside where the car has, like, just crashed. And the horn is nonstop going. And because we know the mechanics of how the Phoenix works, it actually made me really sad. Because, you know, he's not an agent. He's Mrs. Frederick's bodyguard. Mrs. Frederick has likely interacted with the Phoenix or something. Mm -hmm. and, And I love that the writers put so much care into him they put that irony in with his line they just he's not on screen much but he's meaningful and I think that's really cool and Micah is the one who points and says oh Mrs. Frederick is over there and then they run to Mrs. Frederick instead of the burning car so the question then becomes how did Mrs. Frederick get out of the car was it her powers or was she flown from the car who knows even in a dire situation she's mysterious AF Oh boy, what an amazing thing if she had the ability to eject herself from a car without using the door. Right? Yeah, love it. Because I also wonder like what the purpose of the bodyguard is. Can she only appear and disappear at the warehouse? Is it confined? Like what are the boundaries of this power? We just don't know. Mm -hmm. Um, And then from a nearby higher vantage point, we see McPherson watching the whole thing. Yeah. He assumes Mrs. Frederick was the one that was killed based on the fact that, you know, she's fallen and on the ground. And then Lena approaches McPherson with someone who is wrapped head to toe in a brown, I wrote, shroud? Is that the right word? Is that really Jamie Murray under there? Because the person feels too tall. I think it's a different person under there. I mean, I doubt it. 
I doubt it's her. It's probably a body double. They might have shot it the previous year before they cast Jamie. I mean, there's just so many factors that could happen. It's a very strange looking human person and the wrapping does not help. And they obviously for the writing of this episode have to suspend who that person is. And so Lena gives us the line that she recommends complete isolation for 24 hours because we are led to believe this person has been bronzed for, you know, however many years and that they, you know, could being exposed to sunlight or whatever could be bad for them. So like it works, but it's, it's a kind of crazy scene. And the other thing I noted about it is that when McPherson says, Oh, it was Mrs. Frederick. Like I'm not, sorry, sorry, I'm not sorry, sort of thing. This suggests that he knew the Phoenix was at play, and that's going to come back later. And we know that he doesn't really care about anyone, but he has a soft spot for Artie. We do, yeah. Um, And so McPherson and this tall, shrouded figure are on their way. (laughs) Well, he says to Lena, I'll contact you with instructions. Until then, you know what to do. And Lena just says, yes, I'll take care of it all. Then he leads mystery person away and says, um, come on, old friend, you have a great deal to keep up on. And he also says, welcome to the future. Let's change it together. And that is such a good, once you know what it is, it's such a good thing to say to H.G. Wells. Like, but here's the thing. The writing of this episode is so good, and I don't believe any line is wasted. So if he says come on old friend that implies talking to this person at some point before and that begs the question how many times did he unbronze people in quiet moments before he was ejected from the warehouse or when he was able to sneak in or use lena for something how many of these folks did he speak to over time in order to find the right one. Or like even before he was booted as an agent, we know he was kind of crooked. He could have been in there. Oh, that's so good. I didn't think of that, but I love your brain. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and then I just wrote theme song dance. We both did a dance. Um, Luckily, this is a podcast where you can't see our dances. (laughs) Or unluckily. um, (laughs) (laughs) There were some updates to the credits, but they were very subtle. But I did notice among some stylistic things and the way they showed characters' faces, the Baylor dodgeball has been added to the opening credits. Oh, we love that little scene. That was so funny. That was super fun. And with that, we move on to Act 2, which starts at Ellsworth Military Hospital in South Dakota which also was introduced to us with a fun Chiron effect. And they started adding animations to the Chirons this season. And this one was one of those heart rate lines from like a heart rate monitor in a hospital. It's like such a small thing that I really associate with this show are those like cool Chirons. Um, So Artie is in the hospital with Mrs. Frederick. And so it seems that Mrs. Frederick is, you know, unconscious but Artie's talking to her anyway. And then it seems that she like awakens suddenly and tells him to find Claudia and Joshua because McPherson is playing the long game. But wait, she didn't actually wake up. Artie was nodding off 
And she somehow communicated to him, like, in a dream or in his mind, which we have seen in previous episodes, but we don't know how that works. And we never will. And it's so cool. It's so, But I totally believe that it would happen based on things that we learn about her character moving mm-hmm. forward. We also, you know, Artie doesn't question it. Artie doesn't say, oh, wow, I was hallucinating. Like, he knows she can do this. And that he has to take her advice as, like, as if she really did wake up and tell him that. Yeah, he... They play it so well. You know I love scenes with the two of them together, especially when it's just the two of them. Um, And then in the warehouse office, Pete, Micah, and Lena keep watching the video of fake Claudia, who nobody really knows is fake Claudia, waving to the camera. Um, Micah trusts the evidence because of course she does, but I also think it's a defense mechanism. I think after having gone a year in this warehouse... She's smart enough now to go, don't always trust what you see, which is very counterintuitive to the way she is as a person. We talked a lot in the first season about how important Claudia was for Micah and that female connection that they had as, you know, sort of sisterly, sort of maternal. Micah is someone who cares so deeply about her co-workers and her partners, and she takes betrayal and loss very, very hard. Um, but Pete... It's just like, nope, don't believe it. I'm going to refuse to believe it, and I don't. (laughs) Lena is also feeling a little weird in this scene, but she's like, oh, no, it's fine. It's nothing. And so, you know, we have that going on in the background. Yes, I have things that I want to say about that, but we'll get to it later. But I believe it's Pete who introduces the idea that maybe McPherson may have done something to her. And that is something that Micah does immediately seize on and agree because that's a logical conclusion that she can follow without getting too emotionally invested. She's like, well, that's possible, but I'm still going to have this wall here because she suffered a lot of unexpected emotional blows over the course of the day, and she's not built to hold all that. You know, Micah also has the line, like, innocent people don't run. Which is just not true. It's not true at all, especially for a 19-year-old. Yeah. Um, You know, but this is the wall she's building up of, like, well, here's some possibilities of what could be happening, and I just have to run with them until I find out otherwise. But I also love that we have context about her to understand that, because if we... Go back to the very first episode, the pilot episode, that's sort of the place that she was already in when we first met her, but it made her seem very standoffish and judgmental at first, you know? Mm, And I like that now we see like, okay, this is the way she deals with hard loss is she gets very by the book, she gets into the rules, and she just tries to logic her way out of emotions. So this brings us to Artie huffing and puffing his way into the scene. Uh, He tells Lena, oh, you got to replace that umbilicus. I hate the stairs. Yes. He has information that Claudia is running to Switzerland to see Joshua at CERN, which absolutely makes sense because that's her only person in the world. And without wasting a second of time, Artie is just grabbing stuff from the warehouse office And he's like, I'm going to CERN. And they're like, you're going right now? And he's like, yeah, obviously. Um, Of course, Micah and Pete insist they have to go with it. Of course, they're going to be there. 
but he says they have to stay behind because McPherson had his dirty hands on the warehouse. Um, those are my words, not his. Yeah, he said McPherson has had hours of unfettered access to the warehouse, and God only knows what that man may have done. Um, and as he's gathering items, he places them in his Mary Poppins bag, including, <laughs> I don't know if you saw, but on a ceiling beam, he reaches up and takes a Tesla. Yeah, I saw that, and I was like, it was so hardcore that, like, because usually Artie is, like, sitting in his little office, you know, sweet, older gentleman Artie, and it's like, oh, he's got a Tesla up there in case of emergency, and he's not messing around on this trip to CERN, like, he's gonna go. And, of course, he spends more time in that office than anybody else. He's gonna know what's in every single nook and cranny. Yeah. Um, and so they they listen. They're gonna comb through the warehouse. And this brings them particularly to the bronze sector because they know that's where McPherson was. Yes, Artie says to start in the bronze sector and retrace McPherson's steps. And Micah agrees, you know, okay, I'm going to stay behind. You've laid out a logical path for me to follow. But she goes to Artie and with the super emotional eyes that just kill me, she says to Artie, stay safe. He already killed you once. Oh boy, it's so in the heart because she doesn't she she cares about him. She doesn't I want know. him to die again. And he acknowledges her fear with the curt yeah, but avoids eye contact. Oh Artie. And I just love like these two very emotionally repressed people are just like, I have emotions about you. Thank you for having emotions about me. Bye. <laughs> And this is a great thing because it's so common, and we're going to talk about fandom later in this episode, but, like, it's so common for a romantic pairing to, like, be two people with repressed emotions and we ship them. But this is just, like, you know, familial love and friendship that we're seeing this same complex and, like, lovable dynamic of those personalities, like, in a completely different sort of relationship than we ever think about. Like, all the relationships in this show are so complex and real, you know? Which is exactly my favorite way to portray emotions and relationships. I have nothing <laughs> against romantic relationships. I think they're very important. But I think that a lot of TV shows portray romance as the only an ultimate relationship that you should strive for and other things are nice this mm -hmm. one takes a very hard stance of relationships that enrich your life are all equally important which is something that i really feel in my heart oh that's so good you're so smart i love you so much <laughs> thank you okay what, what do we uh um, they're using the durational oh, yeah. spectrometer yes uh and <laughs> Micah reminds him that it only works within the past five hours, and then Pete screams when he sees a rat, which is the first time we learn that he has a fear of rats. It's really funny, and, um, you know, it was obviously a rat from five hours ago, so there's no fear. <laughs> While Pete uses gadgets, Micah does good old detective work. <laughs> she does. Um, and then she also uses her brain. She's like, oh, well, there's, uh, you know, the monitor of the bronze machine uh clearly something has been dragged around this area let's see the history of the machine and we see a very great like loading screen of like auto self-check or whatever but two d bronzes have occurred they know one of them was mcpherson getting out 
And the way that these shots like happen all in a row, it's like cut to surprised faces and we're like, oh no. And then it cuts back and it's H.G. Wells. Micah's face when she (laughs) sees that it's H.G. Wells is astounding. Pete is just like, this place keeps getting more interesting every day because to him it's like any other famous history person. It's like, oh, I've heard of that person. That's cool. Now they're involved in my life in some way. Whereas Micah is like, oh my god, H.G. Wells, but oh no, why was H.G. Wells bronze? There's just like this blanket, this tapestry of emotions that are crossing her face, and she doesn't know whether to be like super excited or very disappointed or maybe scared. There's just a lot happening. Well, and right, they only recently learned the bronze sector exists, and the description that they were given was that these were like the future Mussolinis of the world, and Micah is like, uh, this literary author who we're going to talk about later, who was like a progressive political figure, like a uh, we would think of as a kind of more modern person for the Victorian era. It's like, why would this person be a horrible? Oh, no. And I think also Micah is in a very emotionally vulnerable place right now, not just because, you know, something bad happened to one person, but because a lot of people who she cares very deeply about. She thought Artie was dead because he was dead. And then she thought Pete was going to die, but then he was fine. And then finds out that Claudia has betrayed her, as far as she knows. There's just only so much she can rationalize at a time. And H.G. Wells is so far out of left field that there's almost a Pete aspect to her where she's reached her limit and is like, maybe I don't believe that this person was so bad. Like, I think any other day she'd be like, oh, I guess they're really terrible. I'll have to find out what happened to them later. But right now she's just like, no, no, not H.G. Wells too. And it's such a good moment for a commercial break. And I wrote down, it's the one that's like, and it's like, it closes out and you're just left with this revelation that H.G. Wells is loose in the world. (laughs) And then we go to a commercial break and we're like, okay, And obviously, if you're me, if you're a little baby English major Miranda, you know, watching this in 2010, and you're like, oh my god, I'm so excited! Yes, because that is the end of Act 2, and I want to point this out specifically because we get a brand new animation outro that was not in Season 1. This was of a warehouse vault door closing. Yes! I just want to keep track of all the new ones that they add, because they do add several new ones throughout this season. We meet Pete, and he is typing on a computer, which he hates. He's visibly antsy. This is not his thing. He's an out-in-the-field kind of dude, and he's talking to Lena, who is looking through the card catalogs that Miranda mentioned in Season 1, and Pete asks, why H.G. Wells? Why would McPherson want him? (laughs) Him. Um, (laughs) And Lena says, all I can find on the Bronze Sector is a list of its residents, and H.G. isn't even on it. And then Micah enters. And Micah enters to provide some assistance. She's got (laughs) the biggest, happiest eyes you've ever seen. She's carrying a stack of first edition books. And she's like, "Uh, maybe we'll find out by reading some of his books. 
the library is awesome. And Lena immediately jumps on board. It's like, yeah, there's first editions of everything. Which, okay, for the record, that that is really, really cool. Um, those first editions of first of all, Lena literally says everything, and like I believe she says specifically everything that's ever been printed. Everything. everything. Like, that library, that's, like, the Game of Thrones Sam Tarly library. Like, you gaze upon this, like, whole, like, holy grail of all the books ever. And if you love books, like Micah does. Or like um, Miranda does. Oh, like I do. I mean, I can say that as a scholar, I do get to interact with really old books. And I do often cry. And I never get tired of it even though I've like had a job working with old books, but you know, it's just like, it's this amazing thing that in the middle of <laughs> all of this, um, Micah is excited about the books and she has knowledge of H.G. Wells's work. And they're going to use that to, you know, sort of figure out what's going on. And for listeners in the show notes, I will post a transcription I wrote in 2014 of a time I took Miranda to a rare bookstore and she forgot how to breathe a little bit. I almost died. And this is also really funny because you may know me on Twitter or Tumblr as PhDBFF because before <laughs> I was active on social media, I was I was not a person. I was just Jillian's best friend. And she was active on social media, and she would refer to me as PhD BFF. So as you read that, be aware that that was like before I was even an internet person. I named myself after Jillian's persona of me, which is completely <laughs> accurate. Like, you think it's a, per- a persona of me being a best friend who just is a PhD book nerd? But, like, it's all true, every every bit. And I just would also like to say that I'm very glad that she eventually joined the social media world because... I think people were starting to think maybe you weren't real. Maybe I just made you up. <laughs> Sorry. Anyway. So, um, of course, Micah, Micah says that her dad, a.k.a. Colonel Ty, used to read H.G. Wells to her. And Pete makes a joke like, nothing like some more of the worlds for a toddler. And then they're, they're like, what? You know, you you like War of the Worlds? And he just starts going off about, oh, yeah, I saw the Tom Cruise movie, which was, like, from the aughts, and I think is really bad, but whatever. Um, and the Dr. Moreau with Brando, like, he's talking about all the films. Um, obviously, H.G. Wells' works are some of the most prolific science fiction that has been, like, interpreted and made into film and radio and all of that a million zillion times. So, of course, Pete knows about it. And he also asks if they have comic books, which they really judge him for. But comic books are cool. And if he is, like, really knowledgeable and wants to see a first edition comic book, I say let him. Yeah, and, like, first edition comic books are pretty hard to come by, especially the old stuff. But I do like how Micah says, really, that's your first thought? And he's like, no, but you wouldn't like my first thought. And he just turns around. Yes. Oh, and then Pete finds a headline on his computer where he, I guess, has begrudgingly accepted that he must actually do some research and contribute, and finds a news article that says H.G. Wells' historic home burglarized. Finds out someone broke in ten months ago, but nothing was taken. Pete says he's confident that they'll find out Claudia's in the clear and isn't, you know, a bad guy in any way. Yes. Then he says, let's go to London. He has a vibe and is sure Wells is there. Ah! And then Micah, like, split second of, like, should we? Yes, we're going. 
we've got this, we're gonna go track down H.G. Wells. She is on board so fast, even though Artie explicitly said to stay in the warehouse. Mm -hmm. And yeah, partially I think it's because she wants to get to the root of the issue, but I feel like this is just a fangirl moment. She's just like, I I don't care if we gotta bronze him, I just need to meet H.G. Wells. Yes, and so speaking of fangirl moments, um, I was in London this summer, and I went to the historic home of H.G. Wells. I took videos of this, and I'm going to make a Patreon bonus of it. Um, and we'll talk about it throughout the episode. But if you are a Patreon supporter, look forward to that as soon as I can make it. I had trouble editing it when I was in London because my Wi-Fi was so bad. Uh, there's no actual H.G. Wells home like the one portrayed that we're about to see. But what I talk about in our Patreon bonus are a couple of the homes of H.G. Like most people, H.G. Wells lived in multiple places throughout his life. He grew up in a small, crappy house in Kent, where I did not go. Um, (laughs) Sorry, Kent. And uh, spent the most time in London at, wait for it, your brain's about to explode, a home in Regent's Park, where the address is 13 Hanover Terrace. Oh my god. And that is the real, no joke, historic home of H.G. Wells, um, which is not a museum, it's a private residence owned by the Crown Estate. It is amazing that I don't even think the writers of this show knew that like the number 13 and Regents are in the name of H.G. Wells' real home, and it just gives me so much, like, fan theories about the warehouse world being real and like it's not just fiction well it's 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 a very warehouse thing to get wrong for us in the same way that we know they manipulated the story of alice in wonderland there's like the version that we all know and it's like this is the real one which is really cool i like the interplay between reality and the show and that even though we know it's a show the show gives us clues that it has influenced our actual reality, which I think is awesome. So yeah, you can learn more about that in our bonus, and I'll talk more about H.G. Wells later. Um, But first, we're going to Geneva. At CERN, which is, again, in Switzerland. Um, And Claudia video calls Josh (laughs) from, like, a Best Buy? I was thinking, like, an Apple store. Like, do you remember you used to go to the Apple store at the mall and, like, take photos on the computers yeah. at the mall? Like, yeah. Or, yeah, it could be a Best Buy or something for sure, yeah. I thought I saw, like, a refrigerator in the background or something. I don't know. It might It was really good. And you know Claudia was like, okay, I just got to sneak in and find a computer and, like, use it real fast, you know? Yes, and she gives Josh a rundown on some stuff really quick. She says that... The teacher who gave him the Redicus's compass. His real name is McPherson, and that if he tries to contact you, don't trust him. She tells him that she's worried that she's a bad guy, which breaks my heart. And then she says she's coming to him because she can't go back to Artie, and she's not going back to a psych facility. And at that moment, Josh's boss enters and says that he'll be very abruptly raising Josh's clearance level because he needs help removing material from the lab. And then the boss walks out of the office and spots himself across the room talking to a group of other people. At which point, Josh's boss removes a thimble to reveal that he's really 
McPherson and then walks right by the doctor he was impersonating. And he like walks by the doctor and is like, hello, doctor, or something. And you're like, like the gall of this McPherson guy. Like just the worst. Yeah, he's real villainy. Um, And then cut to London, my favorite city in the world. Same. Where apparently Pete watched Marley and me multiple times on the plane. (laughs) I'm sorry. Who would ever watch it more than one time? It's so sad. I feel like Pete needed his own little cry. (laughs) Oh, he needed to cry. Oh, I didn't even think of it that way. He needed to. Oh, and he's like, it's just the puppies. But he's crying because like he's been through He's had a day. He's had a day. Um, Micah, however, slept on the plane like the hardcore professional that she is. Um, And as they enter the beautiful historic home of H.G. Wells, it's full of tourists. Micah thinks, you know, they should have shut it down. But Pete is like, we would have scared away the real H.G. Wells. Like, it's good to come in incognito. And they kind of slip in for this tour where a beautiful dark-haired British woman with a notebook brushes past Pete and Micah. And hello, hello, it's Jamie Murray. Oh, Jamie Murray, I... I'm going to be doing an actress spotlight, but I am going to wait until we find out who Jamie Murray is playing within the context of the show. Perfect. So you immediately see Pete's face light up um, and Micah knows and she's like, Pete, we're working. And he says, working it, which is <laughs> so Pete. Um, and he, you know, he comments it's been a long time. He hasn't been dating or whatever. There's no reason not to get his groove on. And Micah is, meanwhile, having none of this. She is investigating immediately. She has looked at the guest book of the H.G. Wells historic home, and she sees the name Edward Prendick. This leads Pete to go for the easy joke (laughs) about that name. But Micah says, no, no, that's the narrator from The Island of Dr. Moreau, a really great book. And historically, um, the black and white film is like really controversial and cool because, you know, Darwin and stuff. So (laughs) it's just a cool little reference. And this leads them to believe like, all right, like H.G. Wells is here. And in a room that is full of tourists, he (sighs) storms up to someone who is obviously an actor and flashes Badgie which, as you'll recall, is the name of his badge, and confronts the actor while Micah looks mortified. And I do want to say that, whether intentional or not, this is actually a pretty hilarious Bones reference, because uh, Eddie McClintock played the character Sully on Bones, which was a short-term love interest of the main female character, and... The character has a lot in common with David Boreanaz's character on Bones, and there is an episode that came out around the same time where that character and Bones also go to England, and (laughs) David Boreanaz's character acts in a way that is very similar to the way that Pete is acting, just aggressively American. Oh, it's so, so, everything about this confrontation delights me. (laughs) Oh, he says, show's over. And he's flashing his badge as if he has any jurisdiction. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Oh, and you know, too, though, 
not to be stereotypical, but the British people are quite polite and they're kind of watching like, uh, what's going to happen? And Micah is like, no, he's an impersonator. And like, of course he's an impersonator, you know? Um, but she says he's wearing a fake mustache and he is like, huh? and he rips off this fake mustache but he's genuinely surprised because he immediately turns to Micah and instead of being like, I solved it, I solved it, he says he's really vibing out. Those That's the exact quote. He's like, no, but the person is in this room. And he, mm-hmm. instead of feeling very elated like he was a second ago, he actually becomes visibly distressed instantly. Well, right, because it looked to us like he burst in in his overeager way but he says, like, no, I have this vibe. I am right about this. But then the best thing happens. And I was describing this to Jillian before the recording that it's so well done. This actor was speaking in a very proper royal British accent, impersonating the historic H.G. Wells. Um, and when Pete rips off that mustache, he drops immediately to, like, a London accent. It's like, all right. And he says his name is Walter Frith. And <laughs> I love that, like, it's so small of a detail, but this actor totally commits to, like, being a disgruntled H.G. Wells impersonator who (laughs) just got, like, publicly embarrassed. And so because of how much I was delighted by this, I am going to do a mini actor spotlight. So this man, who has, I think two lines. (laughs) It's named Ivan Sherry. He is the actor who plays the H.G. Wells impersonator. He is from London, England, so that, like, that harsh London accent that comes out is his accent. And you may know him because he played Scotty Pullover in Fargo, like, three episodes. And he was also a two-time extra in our favorite show, Orphan Black. Um, he is better known, though, for being a voice actor, which is why I think this scene, he does the voicing so well. He played multiple roles in the Assassin's Creed video game series, like not just one game, but throughout the series. Um, and he also did voices in Hotel Transylvania and Inspector Gadget. So shout out to you, Ivan Sherry. This was a great, fun scene from start to finish. The museum lady is like, Americans, H.G. Wells died in 1946. And we just get everything about this being like stereotypical. But Micah handles it so well. She is a true diplomat. I also would like to comment, because it does come up later, nothing against British people whatsoever. But both you and Pete seem to be of the opinion that British people are polite. To which I will say, they are direct confrontation-averse. But I don't think that they would describe themselves as an objectively polite people. Sure. Fair. I think direct confrontation-averse is the best description. (laughs) You You are correct. And the only reason I nitpick is because this will come up later in the episode. Perfect. So Micah asks the museum lady to step outside, and she's like, well, yeah, I I would like you to step outside, (laughs) obviously. Pete awkwardly, like, tries to stick the fake mustache back on, and it's so funny. It kind of, like, dangles and flops. And then the attractive brunette woman from before kind of, like, averts her eyes and, you know, seems to smile, like, pity or embarrassment for him. And that's the scene, so... 
perfection. Yes. And that takes us to Geneva, Switzerland, where Claudia walks out of a station and senses someone following her and then does something. And I wrote, she turns out down an alley, which you'd think was a bad idea and made yes. me mad, but she's clearly seen Buffy because she immediately finds a safe vantage point and attacks. She does. And is surprised to find that the person she attacks who was following her is Artie. And before we move on, the scene is great, but I had a little pop-up from Amazon, which I probably would have figured out anyways. She is not in Geneva, Switzerland, but actually at London Paddington. Oh! So the screen, yeah, you might, if you've been there, you're like, oh yeah, that is that train station. So I wonder if while they were like filming for London, they just did the Geneva scenes in England as well. Um, because architecturally, it makes a lot of sense. Oh yeah, international travel is hard and the location scouts can only do so much. Yeah, so if you recognize that, it's a little London all the way, but it's still perfect. She goes into that alley. She, we have a point of view shot from whoever's following her, and then it's like, whack! And she has <laughs> knocked Artie to the ground, even knocking off his cute little bowler hat. And, <laughs> Which, thank God he was wearing, otherwise he might not have gotten up so fast. Yeah, and he, he seems like he kind of, like, loses uh consciousness or kind of passes out for a second but before he does he says you're fired it's so good it's so good and farnsworth outro classic commercial break (laughs) and then we come back in act four to hg wells london home and micah is in the middle of apologizing to guests while ushering them out the front door she seems very earnest in her apologies but Pete is hilarious. If you listen to his dialogue, he he's apologizing to the actor, the mustache actor, <laughs> who you did the spotlight on, and is like really overcompensating. Yeah, he's like, yeah, nice Jack. You know, I'm friendly. See, I'm the friendly Sorry American. The <laughs> like, it's really funny. Um, again, he his apologies are comical to us, but Micah has remained completely focused looking at the guest book, and we get the impression that what they had done was, like, compared the people in the tour to the names on the guest book, and they've concluded that this Edward Prendick person is not there, and so they must have missed H.G. Wells, who was there yesterday, or something along those lines. And before we move on, Pete calls the guide who Micah took aside, Mary Poppins. But I really don't think that he intended it to be as disrespectful as it definitely was. I think he was just the most American goon. And then we're back in Mrs. Frederick's hospital room where I wrote she has a dream slash superpowered flashbacks of interactions with Claudia and then wakes up abruptly. Yes. And there's also a little discussion. It might have been right before this or right around this time in the scene with Pete and the Mrs. Poppins reference. He says to Micah, like, what did you tell Mrs. Poppins? And she said, I told her you were a mental patient who thought you were H.G. Wells' long lost boyfriend. (laughs) And I just want to pause on this for a minute because I like can't tell if it's sort of the early aughts like masculine homophobia but also I feel like maybe the line goes in as an introduction to 
subversion of gender expectations because we're about to get one. And by suggesting, you know, that H.G. Wells had a boyfriend, thinking that like a Victorian who would have theoretically been straight maybe wasn't, like maybe they're bringing in gender, maybe it's just totally a 2000s joke that doesn't land. I don't know. I had a totally different read of it, especially because Jack Kenny wrote it, and I know that he wouldn't make... He wouldn't make that, yeah. Well, and not just because he's a gay man who understands, but also because he specifically wrote Pete as the kind of straight man he wishes every straight man could be so i i actually thought pete was not taking issue with the boyfriend part but with the mental patient part oh that's really good yeah yeah and he doesn't that's you know what you're absolutely right micah makes what most straight man would be like no in the 2000s anyways at this time but pete doesn't do any of that pete is just like no you didn't like yeah you know he his masculinity didn't seem threatened. He was, he just seemed like, wait, no, you didn't tell her that. Wait, did you tell her that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, okay. So I'm glad, good talk, good talk. Good I'm talk. glad we discussed <laughs> And meanwhile, Micah is looking through newspaper articles at H.G. Wells' home about the historic person, H.G. Wells. And these include real historical facts. So I'm about to give you a little bit of info. We do have an artifact expert coming up in a few minutes. I asked her if she wanted to do H.G. Wells fact, facts. And she was like, Miranda, you know way more about H.G. Wells than pretty much anyone. So you should do this. <laughs> so here I am. H.G. Um, Wells was indeed a believer in women's suffrage, which was very rare, especially for like an upper middle class man at that time to be so supportive of women's rights. He is best known for writing what he called scientific romances, but we would now recognize as like some early science fiction. And some people even call him like the father of science fiction. Again, we're going to talk about this with gender later, but like the quote unquote fathers of science fiction, number one being Mary Shelley and number two, with the possible gender bend of this show. I kind of love that subversion. And the other kind of history is that we know Wells for that, but in his lifetime, he wrote things that we don't remember anymore, but were far more important to him, which were novels with female protagonists and novels about lower to lower middle class communities. So both of those things were really modern and unexpected at the time. Um, again, people don't really read those anymore, but one of his most famous novels was called Anne Veronica. It was published in 1909, and it scandalized people because it's in favor of women's suffrage, economic independence for women, equal education for women, and that particular novel is actually about a young woman who wants to be a scientist. So all of these things that kind of just get told at a glance of newspaper in the episode are super, super cool historical facts. There is a great link that we'll put in our show notes to an article in a uh, journal called Book Riot about H.G. Wells as an early feminist. And not only that, that's kind of what's most relevant for our episode, but he was also a socialist and an atheist. He believed in human rights and was a pacifist and political activist. So things you don't know or think about H.G. Wells are that 
he wrote a work in 1940 called The Rights of Man, and that was ultimately used to lay the groundwork for the United Nations Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Which I have read and is a very important work. Yeah, he was a good dude, and um, he was modern in a lot of ways, but still had faults, so I'm not saying he was perfect, but for the you know first two decades of the 20th century being his heyday, he was really ahead of his time. Um, I will say this right now. No one in Victorian studies thinks he was a woman. He does not have a sister named Helena, but who cares? That's not important. A lot of the stuff is factual and the sort of border between his real historical character and this fictional version of him in the warehouse, it's just great storytelling. And I don't think it really matters if there was a conspiracy theory that he was a woman or not. Because the fact is, it's plausible as a conspiracy theory based on his actual writings. So, like, why not? And also, people in Victorian studies don't think H.G. Wells is a woman. They don't think that... Or they know that he didn't have a sister named Helena. But again, this goes back to what we were talking about before with the show leaves clues that within the world of the show, there are things that influence our reality outside of the show. So it's like, yeah, okay, there's no evidence. Or is that what the warehouse set up for you to think? We Ah, just don't know. It's very good. Um, And so the specific news article that Micah is reading at H.G. Wells' old desk with a very suppressed smile on her face is about giving women the right to vote, and she seems very pleased, and then she says that's probably why they bronzed him, Neanderthals. Which is absolutely a great feminist read on this situation, because if the Victorian period had such stark gender roles as most people in that period did, some people were really awesome but like who's to say that a previous warehouse didn't bronze people for being political radicals like obviously we don't want to think that but like you don't know i mean especially with everything that we talked about in 104 claudia about the ways victorian ideas about mental health and insanity influence the treatment of women it's a very relevant critique of the time too Yes. Meanwhile, near the front, Pete sees someone trying to get into the locked house. He opens the door to find that it is attractive woman. Mm-hmm. He, like, throws this door open, like, ready to take her down. So funny. So funny for reasons that I will talk about very shortly. Um, but Pete's a big dork and lets her in to look for something that she left. And she just flirts and fakes a British accent very badly. And meanwhile, we are now in a Swiss alleyway where Claudia says she wants to see Josh and that if she's a double agent, then she shouldn't be trusted. And then Artie says, you just trust me. And he also says, are you planning on running the rest of your life? Because that's what it's going to take to get me off your back. And he's full dad Artie. He's like, trust me. I trust you. We're going to work together and figure this out. And like... What a perfect dad, Artie. I know. And so then when she says, you can't trust me, he goes, I know you too, kiddo. Which, by the way, the use of kiddo is one of the sweetest things. Ugh. And Claudia very hopefully says, you think I'm not a double agent? And he says, 
I think I can take the risk. Aww. Then he gets like, he shifts from dad mode to boss mode and is like, but don't make me regret it. <laughs> it's so sweet. It's so good. And uh, they they put the pieces together about what's going on. Claudia mentions that she had to warn um, her brother about Dr. Reynolds actually being McPherson. Already knew that information, but then he starts to realize, like, well, that's who gave Joshua the job at CERN. You know, Mrs. Frederick already warned them that he, McPherson, was in this for the long con. And it's like, oh, oh no, we have to get to CERN. And, and uh, Claudia's like, that's what I've been saying. And they rush off to save the day together. Yes. And then back in London... We see Pete making out with the attractive lady who finally gives her name as Helena. Meanwhile, in the study, Artie Farnsworth's Micah and says to fill him in. He chides her for being in London because he was like, do, do you ever listen? Do you ever listen to what I say? <laughs> nope. The answer is no. <laughs> Correct. And Pete gets a bad vibe as Micah arrives to say that H.G. Wells is a woman which Pete already had figured out because the attractive woman he was making out with is pointing a gun at him and is H.G. Wells. I love the way that the dialogue is broken up because Micah bursts in and she goes, Artie says that H.G. Wells is actually, and Pete goes, a woman. And like, yeah, Possibly he's knows. good with the gun. <laughs> yeah. Oh, everything about that, like that little clip isolated from anything else on this earth is still perfection itself. Like beautiful reveal. Oh, so fun. I just love it. And now I have some, just several things to say. First, I would like to introduce two clips. The first clip is a previously unaired section of our interview with Jack Kenny when we asked why he chose to write H.G. Wells as a woman. And this is what he had to say about it. Well, um, that was first season. We were talking about uh, who would be in the bronze sector and who would McPherson uh, want on freeze. And of course, you know, when you're talking about sci-fi, one of the first names that comes into your head is H.G. Wells. And I said, oh, that's that's cool. I love H.G. Wells. That'd be great. But what, what can we do? And we, we're sitting there thinking about how could we make H.G. Wells surprising to us. And I thought, what if H.G. was a woman? And everybody kind of, and, and the sci-fi, the sci-fi nerds all kind of went, what? You can't do that to H.G. Wells. <laughs> and I, I said, yeah, but, well, think about it for a second. What if there was a woman named Helena Gwyneth Wells and... <laughs> No one would no one would have taken a woman writing science fiction in England in the 1890s. I mean, Mary Shelley kind of got away with it many, many decades earlier, but it would be it would be tough. It would be a hard, it would be a hard ro road to hoe. So what if um, she was she used her brother's affront and that was the face of that was the face of H.G. Wells. But and she had all the adventures and gave him the stories and people started to warm up the idea and sci-fi loved it because, you know, it was just cool and unusual and different and so we just went with it we just started writing H.G. Wells as a woman and um I mean and also we did not plan on her being bisexual until honestly it was a last minute throw in line and oh yes many of my lovers were men and people went what what and um and of course we you know we we poked around for various actresses who might do it and I remember Jamie from her season on Dexter which was unbelievable and when they said she was available in the industry, we were like, oh, yes, just offer it to her. She's in. 
I mean, she's she got she's English. She's sexy. She's you know smart. You know, she was and she was great. And actually, after the series had ended, uh, my uh, myself and Bob Goodman tried to sell H.G. Wells as a series uh, where she would be a, um, uh, a sort of a private investigator, Sherlock Holmes type person in New York City in the 1890s, teamed up with an ex-New York City cop named Ben Casey, and uh, who, who was uh, thrown out of the police because he, didn't, he, he wasn't corrupt enough. And they were working for Teddy Roosevelt, who was the chief of police in New York at the time. And um, the big bad for the season was Thomas Edison. The Thomas Edison was a was a bad guy, and we could have really dug into that oh. in HG in the 90s. ABC was going to put it on the air in the summer that year, and they said they needed us to have a co-production with any British channel that we could get on board. So we went to all four of them, and they all turned us down. And I think it's because we made their HG Wells a woman. Oh. Hmm. We wish we could go back in time and be the executives you pitched this to. We would have given you the biggest check. <laughs> well, uh, Channing, Channing uh, 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 Dungey, who was running um, uh, ABC drama at the time, and then she eventually took over as president, she was in love with the idea. And then they ended up doing an H.G. Wells series, I think it was Time After Time. It, it was a couple of years ago. Um, they did a series about based on H.G. Wells' uh, Time Machine. And um, and it didn't, I don't think it, I don't, think it worked for them or maybe it worked a year or a season or two but uh she was in love with the idea she just couldn't get at the time the president of abc to, to get on board with it without a british uh co-producer and um it kind of broke it broke my heart not to be able to sell it we took it to all of them and um couldn't get but you know it's not an idea that is dead it could be done anytime <laughs> um i may still revive it i'll let you know i'll send you the lookbook i had i put together for it oh, oh my god that would be amazing do. that would be i please and now we have another unaired clip from our interview with Eddie McClintock about his initial experience working with the lovely Jamie Murray and learning more about this character. The thing that I really remember is um, standing on set and then being introduced to H.G. Wells, uh, Jamie, and going, <laughs> Seriously? <laughs> the, the hot English chick from Dexter? <laughs> you know, and it was like, hi, I'm, I'm Eddie. Oh, hello, I'm Jamie. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, literally, we met, and then two minutes later, we were totally macking down, and I was like, I have the best job in the world. You know, but I was like, we're very serious, so, oh, come on over. Hi guys, Hi this girls. is my wife, Lynn. Hi. Hi. Nice to meet you. She's a good lady. She's uh, she's been very supportive and is the she is the backbone of this uh, household. That's for sure. Nice to see you. Nice to see you too. You guys sound <laughs> awesome. Good job. Thank you. All right. Bye. Bye. Uh, so yeah, that was um, <laughs> that was. Uh, and then it just, as it turns out, Jamie ended up just being like a cool, nice, you know, not insane person. She's always a plus. Yeah, so totally, totally cool lady. And um, uh, I love the fact that they, you know, the reason they uh, they made H.G. Wells a female was because the based on the premise that the, in the time that she lived in, 
if she had written those things as a female, no one would have taken her seriously. Mm -hmm. And she wouldn't have been um, accepted. The, the works wouldn't have been accepted. But um, since she did this, the pseudonym, um, you know, it was, you know, widely, uh, widely accepted. And, and it was a great little nod to, you know, girl power, you know, which was, which was what her character was all about. And, and especially her relationship with, with Micah. And, you know, people were always, people have been like, so were you, you know, mad that they were like kind of hot for each other? I was like, no, man, who, you know, who could blame the two of them for being two hot people thinking that the other was hot? Like, There's an interview with Joanne where that's what she says, too. Her reaction to meeting Jamie was the same as yours. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so now that we know that H.G. Wells is a woman and that woman is played by the wonderful actress Jamie Murray, I would like to finally introduce the most exciting actor's spotlight. So Jamie Murray is, as we all know, a wonderful actress. And I specifically asked to do this actor's spotlight because I knew about Jamie Murray even before she appeared on the scene in America. Hipster. <laughs> I knew her before she was cool, but that's not true because she's always cool. Um, so her first credit on IMDb is on the TV series Casualty in 2002. Also, concurrently, she was on a TV series called The Bill as the character of Melanie and as Tanya Matthews. She played someone named Kiki in a TV series named King Eddie and went on to work on shows like Doctors and Nurses, Animal, Love Soup, a miniseries called Shakespeare Retold, but where I know her from and where I'm sure a lot of British people won't know her from is from the TV show Hustle, which is a show about a group of con men and Jamie Murray, a con woman who work together and specialize in long cons. There is a sort of magical realist element to it, some fantasy, Jamie Murray is the sole female con artist in this show and is really wonderful. You can see it sets up a lot of her skills because she's constantly asked to play these different roles in these funny situations. And the first time I ever saw her was in an episode of Hustle. It's called The Henderson Challenge. And this is my very, very first memory of seeing her. The summary is that two of the con men in the episode that I remember are bickering about something. So a third party, a more senior conman, suggests that they engage in something called the Henderson Challenge, where both of them are dropped without any clothes or resources in the center of London and have basically a day to get as much money from people and get as far ahead as they can. And the reason it sticks out to me is because I was like in the middle of puberty at the time and I remember this episode not because there were naked men running around on my television screen, but because Jamie Murray was in it, which <laughs> is something to point out for, like, a, a person going through puberty, and, yeah, and I don't remember what happened, but I just remember she was really funny and really great, and I wanted to see more of her, and I did very shortly thereafter on the TV series Dexter where many people were introduced to her. 
she plays a character called Lila Tournay. I don't want to spoil. You should watch Dexter, but it is a very good, very complex character. Much as we'll see in this show, are they the bad guy? Maybe. Are they the baddest guy? Not really. There's a a lot of emotional depth that she shows in this. Uh, she also moves on to play the role of Gaia in Spartacus, Gods of the Arena, the prequel slash season two of the Starz series Spartacus, where she plays the best friend slash love interest of Lucy Lawless, which, as we talked about before, introduced her to the concept of bringing queer readings to the characters that she plays, which is cool. She was also on the show The Finder, which aired for like 13 episodes, which I find interesting, as well as was in Children's Hospital, Fright Night 2, of course, Warehouse 13, Sleepy Hollow, Defiance, she was the Black Fairy slash Fiona in Once Upon a Time. In 2018, she played Antoinette in the originals, and the voice of Carmilla in Castlevania. She also has a recurring role on Gotham, and upcoming, she has two films, which are Possessions and The Rapture. She was also with Sarah Michelle Gellar on The Ringer. She is very, very prolific and has really carved out a space for herself in American television. But there is something I shall put for you in the show notes, which is a webisode of a web series from 2010 called Sweet Seven, in which she co-stars in a surprising way with Eddie McClintock. Every episode of that web series is set in Suite 7 of the same hotel. And the characters don't connect with each other from episode to episode. They're just short vignettes that you see go on in this room. And this one is Suite 7, webisode title, Good in Bed. Well, thank you for that amazing introduction to her. I will definitely plug, if you did not watch Defiance, it used to air on the same night as Warehouse 13. And somewhat friend of the show, by which I mean friend of myself, David Peterson. I was going to bring him up. He's great. The Conlang artist from Game of Thrones. And he wrote at least three complete languages with writing systems for Defiance. Um, so that alone should give you enough reasons to watch it. But also Jamie Murray plays a bisexual alien woman. Um, very, like, very interesting makeup and world building in the, like, alien kind of identities in that show. So definitely, if you are a fan of, like, late aughts television, check out Defiance. It's really good. Follow David Peterson on Twitter. He's really smart. And we love Jamie Murray. Um, I think one of our Twitter followers described her as like the most gay, non-gay or something like that. Like she is she is a friend of the queer community and she's she's really been amazing, even though she's not a queer woman, in terms of her representation of queer characters, she she does an excellent job. A truly excellent job, especially at making queer fans feel as relevant and important to her personally as her non-queer fans. All right, so my computer is starting to struggle with the large amount of audio in this file, so let's go ahead and break it into two parts. We've got about 90 minutes of raw footage left, which will probably mean one, one hour or one hour ten of final finished product for part two. Thank you so much for listening to this episode, and before you go, 
we want to plug really quick a new creative project that Jillian and I are doing. You know that um, mental health and the queer community are really important causes of mine and Jill's, but also we are truly appalled and horrified by the treatment of immigrants in our country right now. And we have launched a completely not-for-profit website called letterstotheborder.com. And what we're doing on that site is collecting letters of love and support for immigrants, families, children, individuals, anybody that's detained in the completely inhumane border detention facilities. These are all digital for now. You can feel free to make a physical letter and send a photo of it, but it's just send in through a submission form a letter of welcome to people who really, really need a welcome right now. Um, please, again, that link is letterstotheborder.com, and you can also find us on Twitter, at Border Letters. We will have more information in our 2.02 episode, but we definitely wanted to make sure you knew about it as soon as possible. So tune in in a day or two as soon as I can get the part two uploaded, and for now, we'll see you next time, Agent.